The time is night, not that many weeks ago. A man walks alone the shadowed streets of New York's Greenwich Village, and he remembers. Remembers when he was more than a man. My apartment is dozens of blocks from here. A different neighborhood. A different world. Why then do I find myself walking here, down this street lighted only by memories? Memories of a life I have sworn to forget. My name is Conrad, and welcome to the seventh episode of Stranger by the Dozen, a weekly podcast where we recap the adventures of Dr. Stephen Strange, Master of Mystic Arts, 12 issues at a time. This week, we'll see the Doctor suffer the horror of cancellation and then be reborn as a member of a mighty super non-team. Just a reminder that you can find the show on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Stitcher, and any other fine podcast app. Give the show a five-star review, and I'll read the review on the air, regardless of content, within reason. If you want to read along with the podcast, you can find all the issues covered this episode on Marvel Unlimited, and in Essential Doctor Strange number two, and Essential Defenders number one, or Marvel Masterworks Doctor Strange volume four, and Marvel Masterworks Defenders volume one. Let's get straight to the issues. Doctor Strange, number 181, July 1969. Note that from 180 to 181, the comic is gone bi-monthly, once every two months. If a world should die before I wake. Edited by Stan Lee. Written by Roy Thomas. Art by Gene Colan. Inked by Tom Palmer. Lettered by Gene Izzo. We're getting to the end of funny opening credits. I don't think we'll have any more for the rest of the run. When we last left our hero, it was January 1st, 1969, and he had accepted the challenge of the evil Nightmare. Nightmare has captured the mighty Eternity and is using Eternity's power to summon threats from all over time and space, including dinosaurs. There's a pretty awesome picture of an angry Stegosaurus and various warrior hordes, including future dudes, Vikings, and, um, other? I think there's some cavemen guys? Doctor Strange accepted the challenge, and Nightmare gives him an hour to get his affairs in order. He goes out for a walk on the snowy streets of New York City with Clea, and Strange seems to have decided to not worry her about his impending doom. So they do what they normally do, which is walk around and get harassed by random people on the streets, and then settle their hash using magic. This one guy is about to throw a snowball at Strange and Clea, but instead Doctor Strange turns him into an ice sculpture instead. Instead of just blasting him, as Clea suggests, Clea has zero patience for street harassment. Eventually, though, Strange changes into his crazy superhero form and enters the Dream Dimension. He says this is the first time he's done this bodily instead of as an astral projection, but I think he did it once before when he was saving Victoria Bentley from Yandroth. Maybe that was the dimension of dreams and thus different from the dream dimension? Anyhow, the art is suitably trippy, though they might be patting themselves on the back a little bit too much with Strange's narration. A kaleidoscopic cosmos filled with shifting shapes and colors beyond even the imaginings of a Freud, a Dali, a Kandinsky, which, let's not get delusions of grandeur here, guys. Doctor Strange fights a few waves of bad guys here, eventually destroying them with a pretty boss spell. Mighty Oshter, Tower of Towers, 
without limit are thy powers. To yon fiendish ones, reveal them. Into one mass now, congeal them. And he turns them into a big mass of dead bad guys. And then he calls out Nightmare. Now the fight is fully on. And Doctor Strange does what I always suggest he should do. He makes his opening move to use his amulet to win the fight. Alright! But then, crap! Nightmare was ready for this. He takes control of the mystic eye inside Strange's amulet and turns it against him. Doctor Strange is now at the mercy of his own greatest weapon. The mystic eye shoots a magic beam at Doctor Strange, and the barrier between Nightmare and the conquest of Earth is no more. Next issue, Chaos. Doctor Strange, number 182, from September 1969. And Juggernaut makes three. Roy Thomas writer, Gene Colan artist, inked by Tom Palmer, lettered by Gene Izzo. This issue starts off with about five pages of Nightmare gloating about having bested Doctor Strange. This is the kind of confidence that only a man in a cape and a green fishnet costume can have. It looks like Nightmare is going to use Eternity's power to remake Earth from the ground up, and no one dares to stop him. Except, I dare. Once, my name was Kane Marco, but now I am more. Now I am the Juggernaut. Oh, snap! So it seems that Doctor Strange can astral project even when he's being beamed by his own amulet. But he can only go to other crazy dimensions. So eventually he ends up in the Crimson Dimension, where the Juggernaut has been banished since X-Men 33. He came back briefly in X-Men 47, but was then banished right back. FYI. Doctor Strange taunts the Juggernaut in the Crimson Dimension, and then leads him back to the Dimension of Dreams to fight Nightmare. Right at this critical moment, back in the Sanctum Sanctorum, Wong and Clea receive a telegram! I believe this is the first time we see the street address of the Sanctum uh, 177A Bleecker Street, which is an actual New York City address. There's a bodega and a tattoo parlor and a framing store there and a bunch of apartments, though it lacks the distinctive giant skylight. Anyway, back to the action. Juggernaut is not too pleased to have been disturbed by Doctor Strange and has chased him back to the Dream Dimension to beat him up, and then decides he doesn't like Nightmare much either. So it's kind of an all-on-one super fight. First, Juggernaut uses some powers he picked up in the Crimson Dimension to shrink Nightmare down to be small enough to punch, and they duke it out while Doctor Strange corrals his amulet, then uses it to blast the captured Eternity free. Or so it seems. Eternity kind of rouses himself, calls everyone there dumb, and that he could have freed himself at any time, but instead let himself be prisoner for a few months, because months are nothing to mighty Eternity. Whatever, dude. Eternity then consigns Nightmare and Juggernaut to oblivion. Juggernaut will be gone for about four more years when he'll return to menace Hank McCoy. The Beast. Nightmare. Well, we'll see. But hey, uh, what about that telegram? Well, even before they open it, there's one big thing in that it's addressed to Stephen Sanders, not Stephen Strange. It seems like Eternity has completely remade the universe from the ground up to give Doctor Strange a full secret identity. That has to be the weirdest way to give someone a secret identity. But whatever, I guess. Doctor Strange number 183 from November 1969. 
Beware the Undying Ones, says the cover. Inside, the title is They Walk by Night. Roy Thomas writer, Gene Colan artist, Tom Palmer embellisher, Gene Isso letterer. The real star of this, the final issue of Doctor Strange Volume 1, is the accusatory narrator who presents the story. Fly, Stephen Strange, towards your dark goal. For your enchanted cloak of levitation will not shout the answer you seek above the pelting downpour is just an example of awesome narration here. This issue starts with an H.P. Lovecraft quote. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it is not meant that we should voyage far. And this issue is a very H.P. Lovecraft kind of story. Once we get to it, at least, we actually open on Doctor Strange and Clea getting angsty about eternity, changing the Doctor's name to Stephen Sanders. I'm not going to call him that during the podcast because this whole part is dumb and I don't like it. Until he actually remembers that they got a telegram last issue. It appears that one of Doctor Strange's old medical buddies, Kenneth Ward, needs his help. Now, Doctor Strange has been invited over by an old friend at least three times so far, and each time it's been a trap. So, fourth time's a charm? Note that it's the second time this has happened that a female character has been nervous based on female intuition, and then some point is made about that being a kind of magic too. Sigh. Anyhow, Ward's house has a butler and two bodyguards, and Ward himself is confined to a wheelchair and gets tired out after saying one or two sentences. Strange agrees to stay the night and is locked into his room because it's a trap. Luckily, he changes into superhero mode and flies around to Ward and easily mind whammies him into telling him his story. Here's where it gets Lovecraftian. Ward apparently went exploring in the Himalayas based on a dream he had where he found a temple made of insane geometries and guarded by statues of monsters spawned from some forgotten hell. In between the statues was a small idol of two winged monsters giving a piggyback ride, sort of totem pole style. After he returned to the States, Ward sent the telegram and was promptly attacked by three monsters who claimed to serve the Undying Ones. Where are these monsters now? Yep, it's the butler and the bodyguards. They're actually crazy monsters with crazy facial hair, mostly evil mustaches. After a moderate fight, Doctor Strange beats them with this spell. As the three dark shades detect me, may the Seraphim direct me. May they shield me and protect me. Let the shrouding night be gone. Let the loathsome pit-born spawn stand before me midst the dawn. And he takes the curtain off a nearby window, killing them with sunlight. Unfortunately, the strain of the battle is too much for Kenneth Ward, who has died during the fight. Bummer. Doctor Strange promises to avenge Ward by taking down the Undying Ones. Next issue, The Searchers. But there is no next issue. <laughs> um, the cancellation must have been a really abrupt choice because there's no mention of their not being a Doctor Strange number 184 or that this story will continue in Submariner 22 in February 1970. 
the monarch and the mystic. Roy Thomas writer, Marie Severin artist, inked by Johnny Craig, lettered by Artie Semek. All right, Marie Severin. Anyway, it's pretty clear that Roy Thomas is using his ability as the writer of a bunch of different Marvel comic books to give Doctor Strange a decent send-off. Good on you, Roy. I'm not going to go into Namor's whole thing here, but... Like I said, in a previous episode, he's basically a way cooler Aquaman without the fish. Last saw him in our first episode when he was kidnapping slash proposing marriage to Sue Storm of the Fantastic Four. While I love Namor in theory because he's one of Marvel's greatest jerks, I'm not totally sure what's going on with him right now in the comics. From what I've pieced together though, Namor lost his ability to breathe underwater because of the machinations of an evil alien named Dinor the Stalker. This issue starts with Namor having a medical procedure to fix this, but while Namor is knocked out for his dreams are invaded by none other than Doctor Strange, who begs Namor to help him resolve this Undying One's caper. Strange also gives us some backstory about these Undying Ones. So I guess in the time before time, all these demons rule the Earth, like lording their power over cavemen and stuff. And those demons were in turn ruled by the Nameless One. What can change the nature of a man? Nothing, if the man is actually a two-bodied, winged totem pole monster with cubert mouths. It's a, it's a Planescape joke, I'm sorry. Since these earliest days, it seems that the Nameless One has been behind all of your basic evil wizards and monsters and stuff through history. The key part of this is a mysterious idol that forms a gateway between the worlds of demon and men, and Doctor Strange needs Namor to find it. Namor comes out of his surgery, and he's cured! Yay! But no time to celebrate. Instead, Namor swims with super speed to Boston, where he steals a disguise, trench coat, and fedora, and follows his instinct to the house of Kenneth Ward. He goes to knock when, by the swirling sargasso, the knocker briefly turns into the symbol of the Nameless One, but then changes back. The door is answered by a lady with a cat. She's Joella Ward, Kenneth's daughter. Kenneth didn't seem old enough to have an adult daughter, but who knows, I guess. Namor hears a voice in his head telling him to search the den and finds it ransacked and is then in turn attacked by a crazy lion monster. Namor starts the fight fully clothed and he ends it in just his scaly briefs because he knows what you want, comic book reader. After the fight, Namor checks a portrait in the den and on the back finds a handwritten note. He who lit the first witch pyre now guards the demon's dark desire. Kenneth Ward. He wrote the note in block letters and then signed in cursive, which is a nice touch. Very classy, Kenneth. Namor appears to know a lot about New England history and sets out with this clue, but not before noticing that Joelle is the spitting image of another picture on the wall. They walk to the statue of John Goodwin, who they say was a judge at the old Boston witch trials. However, my consultation with the internet tells me that Goodwin was actually a mason whose children were accused of witchcraft a few years before Salem trials started. Like, accusing his kids was how Cotton Mather earned his uh, witch-hunting bona fides. So I'm not sure exactly who they're actually talking about here. But that aside, 
Namor totally rips the statue out of the ground and finds the idol of the Nameless One underneath it, only to suddenly have the idol gaffled by Doctor Strange. What up, bro? There's no time to explain, as Strange blasts Joella, revealing her to be the lion monster from before, and forcing herself to kill herself for failure? It's definitely the sense I got. Strange reveals that Kenneth Ward didn't even have a daughter. Strange also reveals he's been looking for the idol for months, and when he found it, he was worried about bad guys sensing his involvement, so he possessed Namor to help him out. Apparently, the bad guy based her look on the portrait Namor saw in Ward's house. Meanwhile, remember how I said when she first appeared that Joella had a cat? Well, FYI, that cat has been stalking around the whole time, and now we see that the portrait version of Joella had an identical-looking cat, too. Could it mean? Yes, it does! Demon Cat! The Demon Cat uses the idol to open a gate between worlds where the Nameless One is waiting eagerly. After a brief struggle with the Demon Cat, the guys fall into the gate where the Nameless One and his minions, the Undying Ones, wait. There's no way they can fight them all. One can escape, but the other must stay behind to keep evil at bay. Who will it be? Well, not having your own active comic book sort of makes the choice easy. Doctor Strange pushes Namor through the gate and closes it behind him. Namor promises he will always owe a debt to Doctor Strange, a promise he will only reluctantly remember when Strange comes to collect in about two years. Incredible Hulk, number 126, April 1970. Where stalks the Nightcrawler? Roy Thomas, writer. Herb Trimby, artist. Artie Semek, roadmap salesman. Doctor Strange isn't even on the cover of this issue. Rough. Unlike Submariner, which had tons of backstory, this comic opens cold, with Bruce Banner knocked out in the shredded remains of his purple pants. Hopefully I don't have to explain the Hulk too much, but basically when Bruce Banner gets angry, he turns green and becomes a giant, not very bright behemoth, the Incredible Hulk. Anyway, it seems like after a fight with the Absorbing Man, Bruce has turned back to human form and passed out, where he is then kidnapped by some no-good cultists. From their regalia, wall hangings, and linen patterns, these guys clearly worship the Nameless One, or the Undying Ones in general. There's a bunch of them, including a blonde lady named Barbara Norris. They don't say her last name here, but trust me. Her brother Jack, and the evil cult leader Van Nyborg. Barbara is having her doubts about being a cult member, but not enough to stop her from forcing Bruce to breathe in mind control gas. The fourth worst kind of gas. Their plan goes like this. They're going to toss Bruce into another dimension to fight the Nightcrawler, the Undying One's biggest enemy, which will clear the way for them to return to Earth. They do this by putting Bruce on a big lazy Susan and spinning it. The Nyborg then casts this pretty rad evil spell. Let the spinning disc be whirled, like the winds of wild Watum. Let the man who thus is hurled usher in a planet's doom. Let Satanish grant thee power, and Dormammu grant thee speed, that ere long may sound the hour the undying ones are freed. 
A-B-A-B rhyming spells are way more powerful than A-A-B-B rhyming spells, in my opinion. Meanwhile, the Nameless One is torturing Doctor Strange, trying to get Strange to open the way back to Earth. Apparently, if they don't get through soon, the stars won't be aligned properly, which only happens once every thousand years. The plan with Van Nyborg is a fallback in case the torture of Strange doesn't work. They'll be able to invade through Nightcrawler's dimension. Oh, also, uh, Strange is being tortured inside a big pink cage. Just keep that in mind, so FYI. <laughs> Anyhow, Bruce is hanging out in your standard trippy dream space when Nightcrawler arrives. I've been keeping this a secret, but it's totally not top five member of the X-Men, Nightcrawler, though this guy is also blue. Instead, this Nightcrawler is a huge dude in blue metal armor with a blue armored tail, a gold crown, and a big old spiked mace. As the Nightcrawler advances on Bruce, Barbara realizes that sending dudes to other dimensions to fight for you against their will, then watching it on a crystal ball, is evil and uncool. Van Nyborg disagrees, and to prove it, he banishes Barbara to the Nightcrawler's dimension too. Uh, Nightcrawler grabs Barbara, and this triggers Bruce to become the Hulk! Finally, Nightcrawler says, The Undying Ones were not quite so foolish as I imagined, and yet he too shall die like the others. To which Hulk replies, The Hulk is not like any others. The Hulk is like himself, and there is none like him. I should mention uh, now that the Hulk is at his best when he has high self-esteem. So the fight! Uh, the fight includes a pretty cool part where Nightcrawler uses his mace to create magical darkness and everything goes black and white photo negative until the Hulk literally punches the lights back on. Eventually the Hulk will win by clapping his hands once and the sound waves will defeat all surrounding enemies and destroy the Nightcrawler's entire dimension. Power hand clap is one of my favorite moves and just... I, I like the Hulk. I don't know what to tell you. Anyhow, the Hulk Barbara and Nightcrawler all fall into a dimensional warp and into the Nameless Crawler goes to fight the Undying Ones as a whole and as they're distracted Hulk and Barbara try to free Steven. But his jail is such that someone has to take his place when he is let out and we soon see that Barbara Norris has made this sacrifice. Unable to save her, the Hulk and Strange escape casting a final spell by the Seraphim's silent chant and by Moonapore's mystic moon, may omniscient Oshter grant this faithful final boon. And they land in front of the Sanctum Sanctorum, the Hulk turning back to Bruce Banner form. Steven lends Bruce some street clothes and changes into a normal suit. With the Undying Ones now locked away for a thousand years, it might be okay for him to hang up his amulet? And maybe try assisting some surgeries? Who knows? Banner starts his patented solemn walk-away, uh, piano not included, and envies Strange's abilities to just quit being a superhero. And that's it. Uh, Doctor Strange is essentially retired. Until Marvel feature number one, December 1971, which, just to do the math for you, is about a year and eight months after Incredible Hulk 126.
Uh, Marvel feature was a once every three month showcase comic to premiere new titles. Like today, the Day of the Defenders. Roy Thomas writer, Ross Andrew artist, Bill Everett inker, Sam Rosen letterer. It's midnight in the Sanctum Sanctorum, and Doctor Strange is chilling in front of the fireplace as Wong brings him tea. Classic Doctor Strange, not the new look version, as this is after the events of the second story this issue, but just go with it for now. The church bells sound midnight, and they call Doctor Strange's name. What the heck? He follows the sound in his astral form to a hospital, where we see doctors talking about a dying patient. He won't survive the night. He's Yandroth, Scientist Supreme. We last saw him being dropped by Doctor Strange to plunge into an endless void in Strange Tales 168 in May 1968. Apparently, Yandroth eventually landed somewhere and was able to get back to Earth. He then built the Omegatron, a huge supercomputer slash doomsday device. When Yandroth dies, it will explode the world's nuclear stockpile and destroy the Earth. It's extremely well guarded, and Strange has no hope of getting there on his own. Because it won't blow until Yandroth dies, Strange tries to keep Yandroth alive by magically forcing the hospital staff to save him, but to no avail. He does, however, learn that the location of Omegatron is someplace in Maine, so it's time to assemble a team! First, Strange flies to New England and finds Namor. On the way, he uh, scares some drunks who throw their booze away at the site. Classic! Namor apparently is now no longer a prince and is on the hunt for his father, but Strange's story convinces Namor to help. Namor suggests that they get some other team members, including the Hulk and the Silver Surfer. They check out the Surfer, but he's too busy trying to break through the barrier Galactica's set around the Earth to keep him there. It's a long story, and apparently Roy Thomas originally wanted the Defenders to be Namor, the Hulk, and the Surfer, but Stanley vetoed it, and this is kind of a nod to that situation. Instead, Strange flies out to the Hulk in astral form, which he's usually invisible and unhearable in, but the Hulk can see and hear him fine. Strange then inaugurates the classic way of getting the Hulk to work with the Defenders, taunting the Hulk until he follows you, then hoping to calm him down when he arrives to where you are. Also, in this issue, the Hulk looks really weird. He's got a ton of extra muscle and shading lines that make him look either fuzzy or just plain dirty. I don't really like it. So the boys make their way to Yandroth's base. After brainwashing the locals, the assault is on. And it goes really well, actually. Even with just three guys, this is an insanely powerful team. Doctor Strange is no slouch, and Namor and the Hulk are both dudes who routinely go rogue and have to be rounded up by entire teams of superheroes. This actually ends up being a problem, however, because apparently Omegatron needs these super strong guys to punch it to start its program. It tells Doctor Strange this because, as a giant supercomputer, it of course has a face and a very gloaty speech program. <laughs> Strange distracts Hulk and Nabor, but it's not enough. Omegatron starts counting down. Oh no! But Doctor Strange has one last 
spell. List, ye powers, rule the fourth dimension. Rise, your scepters, herald time's suspension. Save this world, this jewel, this blessed terra. Let each moment's flight become an era. And it works. The Omegatron is still counting down, but the time it takes to do so will take countless years. So it's cool to just leave the Omegatron there, I guess? Disguise it as a lighthouse? Anyhow, the team splits up and goes their separate ways because they're all loners. So begins the adventures of the Defenders, the non-team made up of Marvel's most powerful jerks. Second story, The Return. Roy Thomas writer, Don Heck artist, Frank Giacoia our inker, Sam Rosen letterer. Okay, to make this quick, um, Steven Sanders is walking around Greenwich Village and sees that the Sanctum Sanctorum isn't boarded up as he left it, but fully open for business, complete with Wong and the superhero version of Doctor Strange. What the heck? Sanders investigates and is soundly beaten by Super Doctor Strange, as Sanders has rejected the use of magic and thus is defenseless. A captured Sanders is visited by the Ancient One and agrees to once again take the mantle of Doctor Strange. Woo! A classic Doctor Strange and Super Doctor Strange have a wizard duel which Classic Strange wins. He removes Super Strange's mask to reveal Baron Mordo! And he would have gotten away with it too, if not for you meddling masters of the mystic arts. Uh, Mordo smoke pellets out, and we're back to where this issue first started. Hooray! Okay, so we're halfway through the issues for this episode, and Doctor Strange has fully reestablished himself. Let's take a quick break and come back with the back half. back. Let's now fully investigate the early adventures of the Defenders. It's famously referred to as a non-team because the members often don't like each other and the group is generally made up of outsiders and renegades from the regular Marvel Universe. Marvel feature number two, March 1972. This issue also reprints a Submariner story from 1954 uh, basically, aliens show up on a rogue planet and steal the Earth's water until Namor punches them enough to get it back. The art is presumably of its era, but I find it extremely disturbing. Namor's mom has these giant jet black eyes, and the aliens are these gross pink shrimp men, like the first Futurama movie, if you've seen that. Nothing about this comic is cool or good. Anyway... Nightmare on Bald Mountain, Roy Thomas writer, Ross Andrew artist, Sal Buscema inker, Sam Rosen letterer. The place, Rutland, Vermont, home of a famous 
superhero-based costume parade. The time, the night before All Hallows' Eve. A bunch of crazy cultists are having a ceremony on top of Bald Mountain. They dance and pray and summon the Dread Dormammu. Or at least they contact him. It looks like they'll be able to actually summon him fully tomorrow. But to do so, they need a sacrifice. Smash cut to the Sanctum Sanctorum, where the cultists are breaking in. They trick Doctor Strange into leaving his body, then make off with it. Wong tries to stop them with some sweet kung fu moves, but it's no use. They escape. Luckily, he was on the phone with Clea when the fight began, and she rushes to the Sanctum to help and uses her magic abilities to summon Namor and the Hulk. Meanwhile, back in Rutland, we bump into the author of this issue, Roy Thomas, and his wife, Jeannie, who were apparently visiting the town, which is a real place. This is too much for me. Anyway, their townie friend, Tom Fagan, who I believe is also a real person, <laughs> tells them to stay off Bald Mountain. Good advice. As Namor and the Hulk cause widespread panic as they travel to New York, and the Halloween parade gets started in Rutland, the cultists prepare Doctor Strange's body for sacrifice. The scenes are shifting a lot. Amor and the Hulk meet up with Clea and Wong, get disguises, after de-hulking, and get on the Greyhound to Rutland, arriving in the midst of the Halloween parade. They climb Bald Mountain, and it's fight time. Let me just say, I love how minimal an effort is made to make Bruce Banner's pants the same color of purple as the pants the Hulk wears. I'm 100% sure that part of the Hulk's powers are pants coloration. But the boys and Clay eventually fight their way to Doctor Strange and allow him to re-enter his body. Strange then fights Dormammu while the rest of the team fights the cultists and it's all projected above the mountain for the town to see from the lights of Bald Mountain. Finally, the mountain collapses, burying Namor and the Hulk who are fine in the end. I mean, they have super strength. The cultists? Uh, they're pretty dead, though. It's rough. Marvel feature number three, June 1972. A Titan Walks Among Us. Roy Thomas writer, Ross Andrew artist, Bill Everett Inker, Art Simek letterer. There's a lot going on in this issue. It's weird. I don't know. But, so a space capsule is falling to Earth, and it's going to be picked up by an aircraft carrier. And because they had some problems in space with Space Mist, this whole operation is being overseen by longtime Hulk foe, General Thunderbolt Ross, who is currently the Red Hulk in uh, comic continuity. As well as Ross's personal assistant, Jim Wilson, friend of the Hulk, nephew of the Falcon. The space capsule is about to land in the ocean, smack dab in the middle of a whirlpool. A whirlpool with a giant squid at the bottom. Oh no! Luckily, Namor is there to save them. Also, the giant squid looks like a giant octopus to me. I'm just saying. Namor returns the capsule to the aircraft carrier, then fights a dozen sailors on board for basically no reason, because Namor always needs to establish his jerk bona fides. But speaking of jerks, the astronauts in the capsule emerge and basically say that NASA sucks, the system sucks, and they're quitting to become famous celebrities. They quickly sign a TV deal, 
Though strangely, it seems like photographs of the pair don't develop correctly. Surely there's something ominous there. But so, the astronauts have a big TV show. And wow, it's called the Astronauts. One of them seems to be wearing a big white furry costume and demands to be called by the name Zemnu, while the other basically throws pies at him. <laughs> Apparently, Zemnu is going back to his home planet in a month and wants all the kids to join him. Kids are entranced and parents are dismissive. If this story came out now, it'd clearly be about Barney the Dinosaur and whatever the modern equivalent of Barney the Dinosaur is in 2016, but I have no idea what it's talking about in 1972. Sesame Street had started in 1969, so maybe that? Or like local Bozo the Clown shows? I don't know. And it's kind of tearing up inside. Anyhow, Jim is bothered by the show and worried about the Hulk so he goes to confide in Doctor Strange. Suddenly, we're at the TV studio where Astronuts is filmed, and Jim Wilson and the Hulk arrive, and they make a deal for the Hulk to appear on the show in a month when Zemnu leaves for his home planet. FYI, the Hulk is actually Doctor Strange in disguise. It's complicated. Cut to four weeks later, all kids love Zemnu and all parents hate it. The astronauts are broadcasting from a rocket launch at Cape Canaveral, and it's being broadcasted live everywhere, even to a drugstore TV where Bruce Banner can see it. Seeing someone pretending to be the Hulk on TV does not please the Hulk. Hulk studiously defend intellectual property rights. Uh-oh, wait a minute. Anyway, the Hulk isn't the only one on the way to the launch site. Zemnu has summoned all the children to him through the magic of television, and suddenly there's a huge mob of kids storming the fences and stuff to be with Zemnu. It's revealed that the space mist the astronauts encountered was the spirit of Zemnu. Zemnu's actually an old-school uh, comic book monster alien from back when Marvel just did monster comic books. His full name is Emnu the Living Hulk, which is pretty fun for him to be fighting the Incredible Hulk now. And Zemnu wants those kids for extremely evil purposes. Anyway, Namor shows up as well, and together they both uh, destroy the rocket that was going to take off with the kids, and both Namor and the Hulk punch Zemnu to custard. It ends pretty humorously with the enemy defeated and the authorities trying to capture Namor and the Hulk and then just being like deuces and bouncing out. I mean, the Defenders is a team of jerks. It's just the case. Anyway, this is the final issue of Marvel feature that will tell the stories of the Defenders. After this, it'll cover Ant-Man and solo thing stories and the Defenders get their own comic. But first, Amazing Spider-Man number 109, June 1972. Enter Dr. Strange. Script, Stan Lee. Art, John Romita. Lettering, Art Semek. This is kind of an interesting Dr. Strange Spider-Man story because it doesn't feature them fighting the monocled maid Xandu. To give you an idea of how often Spider-Man and Strange fight this guy, um, currently, in the daily Spider-Man comic strip in like your local newspaper, Doctor Strange has been guest starring for the last few months, and 
he and Spider-Man are, in fact, fighting Xandu. <laughs> anyway, with the Defenders going well, it seems like it's time to bring Doctor Strange himself back into the larger Marvel Universe, so we get this quick crossover. It's classic-era Spider-Man here. He's in college, Empire State U forever, and hangs out with his buddies Flash Thompson and Harry Osborn. He's dating Gwen Stacy, who's about a year from dying, and I don't think Mary Jane Watson is a major character yet. The big thing to know is that Flash Thompson, a major character in the comics who usually only gets cameos in the movie, is a Vietnam War veteran, and last issue he was kidnapped by an angry giant. Now he's about to be sacrificed to heal the Holy One, an old priest guy who's been locked in a trance ever since his village was shelled during the war. Flash had tried to warn the townsfolk there before the attack, and now they blame him. Shishan, the Holy One's beautiful daughter, tries to stop them, but it's no use. The sacrifice begins, for it is written, a life for life. But it is also written, thou shalt not kill. Doctor Strange and Spider-Man have teamed up. Uh, Strange could feel the Holy One's magical energy, and Spider-Man tossed a spider tracker on Flash when Flash was kidnapped. Uh, Spider-Man webs up the cultists, and Doctor Strange works his mojo on the Holy One. Let the trance be done, let the veil be torn, with new life begun, be you now reborn, which snaps the Holy One awake. And it turns out that he put himself in a trance to avoid being hurt during the shelling. So, well played, I guess. And that's pretty much it. <laughs> oh, except for one thing. So in this issue, Spider-Man protects his secret identity by filling his normal Peter Parker clothes with webbing and then pretending to kidnap himself. <laughs> Um, remember that Spider-Man is not universally loved in the Marvel Universe, and this deeply freaks out his girlfriend Gwen Stacy. She's inconsolable about it. Eventually, she and Harry Osborn go to tell Peter's Aunt May the bad news. And Aunt May is also sad and crying, and then Gwen totally yells at Aunt May for being overdramatic and infantilizing Peter all the time. It's super duper crazy. But... Uh, Peter Parker's home life is not the province of this podcast. So we go to Defenders number one, August 1972. First big issue, bi-monthly for now. The story, I Slay by the Stars. Steve Englehart, writer. Sal Buscema, artist. Frank Giacola, inker. Artie Samek, letterer. So... The conceit of the Defenders being a loosely assembled non-team is stretched to the breaking point right in the first issue as Namor falls from the sky right in front of the Hulk and the Hulk goes to find Doctor Strange to help Namor. They fly off to do so, but oh dip, it's a trap! This evil dude named ne Necrodemus shows up and he's full of power from the Undying Ones. In one hour, he will sacrifice Namor to them. And I guess he just wanted to bring the other defenders there to gloat? Honestly, that sounds about right. Uh, Namor is covered in a force field that neither the Hulk can break with punches nor Doctor Strange with magic. Instead, Doctor Strange tries to slow time down again using the same spell as in Marvel feature number one. List ye powers of the fourth dimension. And so on. 
he fails. And this seems to have messed up the clock on the Omegatron as well. And it's now slowly, slowly counting down again. Oh, dip. And no one knows. Anyway, Hulk and Strange make their way to the sacrifice site. It's guarded by a big orange monster that the Hulk punches and the sound effect is crunge. I'm now officially keeping an eye out for good sound effects in these comics. So the guys arrive at the sacrifice site and they see the ghostly image of the Nameless One hovering over Necrodemus and Namor. Uh, a quick note about Necrodemus, he's weird looking. He's a hunchback and possibly a little person with a disturbingly long face and a Fu Manchu mustache. But now, as he defends Namor's body, he grows, becoming a big buff dude, and the fight is on! It's actually kind of a similar one to the one Doctor Strange had against Lord Necron last episode. Necrodemus has an hour to kill Namor, or he will be destroyed, so the fight is mostly defense. The boys succeed, and Namor regains consciousness. Namor then reveals that he was knocked out of the sky by the Silver Surfer. Next issue, the search for the Silver Surfer. Also, as we start to get to the end of comic books that are easily available on Marvel Unlimited, I'm starting to switch to physical copies of comics, which means that we're starting to get letter pages, a.k.a. Defender's Dialogue. This time, uh, everyone's pretty excited about the comic, stoked to see Doctor Strange back, but also worried about the fact that the team is made up of jerks who don't seem like good team members. It's a problem, for sure. Defenders number 2, October 1972. Secret of the Silver Surfer. Steve Englehart, scripter. Sal Buscema, artist. John Verputin, inker. John Costanza, letterer. Also, it looks like Stan Lee has switched to publisher, and our old friend Roy Thomas is now editor. Apparently, for the last two months, Doctor Strange and Namor have been searching for the Silver Surfer. Eventually, they find him on the Arctic ice flows. The Surfer seems to know nothing about the attack on Namor, but of course Namor doesn't give him the chance to explain himself. Instead, it's time for punching. The Surfer flies off, saying that he's returning to his secluded valley because everyone else is a jerk. This gives Doctor Strange an idea. After some quick research, Strange and Namor find the Hulk, and they're off to the Himalayas to attack townsfolk and hire Sherpas. To fly there, uh, the Hulk puts on Doctor Strange's cloak, and Strange rides the Hulk piggyback. Then Strange casts a disguise spell on the team, making them look like mountain climbers. This series of events causes one of my favorite Hulk lines. Somebody tell Hulk what is going on. First Hulk has dumb cape, now he has mittens. Never change, Hulk. The boys spend a few days trekking the mountains, but eventually their native guides disappear, and at least one was pretty clearly killed by a yeti or a yeti-like monster. Meanwhile, it turns out we've arrived at our destination, the Valley of the Undying Ones. And it turns out that the valley is full of yetis, as well as the Silver Surfer, who is apparently a big Yeti fan. He's been living with them for a couple months, and it couldn't have been him that attacked Namor. It seems like quite a conundrum, until the Yetis reveal themselves to actually be Undying Ones cultists in disguise. Oh, dip! 
They've been leading the Silver Surfer on all this time, catfishing him with magic, mind-controlling him to attack Namor. All this other stuff that's just deeply uncool. There's a big fight, and the cultists are beaten, and Doctor Strange brainwashes them. Presumably, they then die off-screen, um, trapped in the Himalayas, not knowing how they got there. Brainwashing is a terrible plan. Anyway, Silver Surfer is super bummed about this course of events until Doctor Strange offers a way to fix the Surfer's problems and help him escape from Earth. How? We'll see next issue. Defenders number 3, December 1972. Four against the gods. Steve Englehart author, Sal Buscema artist, Jim Mooney inker, Artie Semek letterer. Also note that this month, December 1972, is when veteran letter Sam Rosen lettered his last comic and retired. We start with a T.S. Eliot quote from Four Quartets. Oh, dark, 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 they all go into the dark. The vacant interstellar spaces, the vacant into the vacant. To arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy. So uh, we return to the cultist-strewn ice fields of the Himalayas. Doctor Strange proposes a showdown with the Undying Ones, once and for all. Strange's offer of interdimensional travel appeals to the Surfer, as it could be a way to get around Galactus' barrier. Namor is also game, mostly for grins, it seems. Uh, the Hulk says no initially, but is convinced. The job is on. Quickly traveling through dimensions, the boys arrive at the home of the Undying Ones, only to find cultist Barbara Norris. Whoa, she's been trapped there since Incredible Hulk 126 back in 1970. Rough. Luckily, our current team is absurdly powerful, and her mystic prison is no match for the combined energy beams of Doctor Strange and the Silver Surfer. Their beams are both very good. The guys plus Barbara are then caught in a huge whirlwind, which they only survive thanks to the Silver Surfer's surfboard, and then they're confronted by the women they love in peril. But they overcome this because one of the ladies is Namor's girlfriend, Dorma, who's been dead for many tides. And then we realize the real enemy, and it looks like Barbara has, in fact, gone evil. Or like, God... In the loneliness of her captivity, she's mated with the Nameless Ones, and it's gross. Now, she's a third head on top of the Nameless One, making it look like a really weird super totem pole thing, and nothing about this is cool. The team manages to defeat the Nameless One, trapping it in the super trap that Barbara was recently trapped in, and Doctor Strange swoops in and removes Barbara from the Nameless One. It looks like being forced to mate with an all-powerful extra-dimensional monster has driven Barbara mad, like full-on, constant screaming hysteria, and it's hard to blame her. The team escapes and arrives back on Earth? This wasn't the plan. The Silver Surfer is pissed and flies off. This issue, and the episode, I guess, ends on a very kind of down, forlorn, Empire Strikes Back type note. Except if, instead of losing an arm, Luke was raped and driven insane, and Han wasn't so much frozen in carbonite as he just kind of flew away to wallow in self-pity for the next 40 or so years. Alright, Defenders! 
Um, I do really like this Defenders team. They're incredibly powerful, but they don't really like each other, and everyone has to be convinced to do each adventure. It's not like, okay, uh, we're the Avengers, time for our next mission. It's like, why should I risk my life for this guy? I don't even like them very much. Which honestly seems more realistic and definitely more modern. Like, this Defenders team seems way more like the movie Avengers than the actual 1972 Avengers do, is what I'm trying to say. Also, I know that these Defenders comics are way less about Doctor Strange than actual Doctor Strange comics, but I think they're pretty fun stories, and there's no reason to skip them, so why not? Uh, next episode, my buddy Drew will be back on the show. We'll finish up this Defenders storyline and get an all-new team member, and then we'll travel to New England with Doctor Strange in his new solo comic for a superhero version of an H.P. Lovecraft story as told by Robert E. Howard. I promise you, it will get weird. If you'd like to contact the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email at strangerbythedozen at gmail.com or interact with the show on Facebook and Instagram at strangerbythedozen, Twitter at strangerbythetwelve, that's strangerbythe one two, and on Tumblr at strangerbythedozen.tumblr.com. During the week, I'll post a bunch of images and quotes from the issues covered this week, so keep an eye out. You can also find a full visual companion as well as episodes from StrangerByTheDozen.com. Stranger by the Dozen is on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, the Google Play Store, and any pod-catching app. And remember, if you leave a five-star review on any platform, I will read it on the show. Until next time, faithful listener, I say... Now Mordo goes to lick his wounds in some netherworld twixt space and time. We'll meet again one day, and when we do, you will best him as you have ever done, Master. Do your words mean? Yes, faithful one. I have once more picked up the mantle of Doctor Strange. I can never put it down again. The time is night, not many weeks ago. A man walks alone the shadowed streets of New York's Greenwich Village, and he remembers when he was but a man. Until next time, my name is Conrad, and this is Stranger by the Dozen. May the Vishanti guide your path. <laughs>